works as a nurse in the emergency department at St. Vincent Hospital and is vice president of the Nurses and Midwives Association branch there. Um, he'll be speaking about the struggle with wages, um, the disgusting stuff to patient ratios, um, and the nurses' recent strike actions, which is, yeah. Danny is a tutor at the University of Sydney and um, Casual's branch representative. Um, of the NTU, the National Tertiary Education Union, um, where they have just voted to um, yeah, go on strike action in May as part of enterprise bargaining. So that's um, and we've got Vivian Honan, who is a New South Wales Teachers Federation member and a member of Solidarity, um, and she will be speaking about their campaign of workload, staff shortages and pay, um, including Last December's teachers strike action. Yeah. Um, our panelists will speak for 15 minutes, um, and then we want to hear from you any like questions or um, yeah anything that you'd like to um, bring bring up for the panelists to ask, or if you just want to make a contribution. Um, and yeah, I guess we should we should start. Um, Damien, if you'd like to. Thank you. Um, Thanks everybody. Uh, yeah, I, I also want to acknowledge we're meeting here on Aboriginal land. Uh, always has been and always will be, and sovereignty was never ceded. Um, it's an honour to be speaking here uh, on this panel, speaking with Viv and Danny, um, and also uh, a big thanks to Solidarity for inviting me to come and speak today. Uh, there's, there's no better time than now to plan for a fairer and healthier world, and it's, uh, it's incredible to be here with you guys, working out how to, how to fix this joint. <laughs> um, my name's Damien. I'm a registered nurse. I've been working as a nurse for about nine years. Uh, I've worked mostly in emergency departments. I'm now the, the branch secretary um, <laughs> of my hospital's branch, and... Uh, and I work as an operational nurse unit manager in ED. Uh, I'd like to sort of start today by just painting a little bit of a picture of the state of affairs in our emergency department, but also in hospitals around New South Wales. And it, things, are, things are really rough. Uh, last week I came into work on a Monday afternoon and our emergency department, which has 24 beds, well, was, we, had, we had 75 patients in the department. So we were sitting at like approximately 300% capacity. We had 26 patients that had been in the emergency department for over 12 hours, seven of them over 24 hours. We had seven patients that were in corridor spaces. So corridor spaces could be someone jammed in a chair or a trolley just shoved into any free area on the floor. It's usually under a bright neon light and there's no privacy. You're, having, uh, you're chatting to a doctor while people are walking past or someone's just sitting and, and looking at you. It's, it's, it's obscene, really. One of these corridor spaces was actually a storage cupboard that we'd managed to shove someone into because it was the only free space. I watched an 80-year-old guy uh, that had advanced dementia in a corridor space try to fist into a, into a bottle under a blanket because there was no way that he could have the dignity to, to have that, that space to, to go to the toilet by himself. <coughs> to care for these 75 patients, uh, we should have had 16 staff on that afternoon. But that day, and like many other days, we were, uh, we were four staff short and they hadn't been able to be replaced by management or by, by workforce. 
So that's 12 nurses <clears throat> looking after 75 patients on a hectic Monday afternoon. And it, it feels like the walls are falling down. You have this constant feeling like uh, the flight or fight adrenaline response while you're at work. You feel manic, you're rushing around and you never feel like you're in control. It's a mad rush between one procedure that's overdue to another procedure that's overdue. And your body screams out at you to slow down, to take a deep breath, but there just isn't any time for that. And this isn't an abnormal situation. This is unfortunately a very regular scene and this has been going on for a long time. I regularly see nurses crying, running off the floor to hide their tears from their patients. On any given shift, you'll have uh, up to as many as six staff doing overtime to cover the shortfalls. And often those overtimes are asked of staff by their managers. People don't want to do it, but you feel such a debt to your colleagues and to the patients that you stick around and take on an 18 hour shift in that place. After eight hours, <laughs> you're wrecked and defeated, but 18 hours, you want to crawl up into a ball at the bottom of a stiff drink or on the couch watching shitty TV and it's, it's incredibly unhealthy. Staff are missing breaks. Staff regularly are not getting their dinner breaks and not getting off the floor at all in an eight hour period of time. And they're usually just too exhausted to let anyone know about it. And, and it's not just the nurses that are suffering. Patient care is being missed. Your, your parents, your grandparents, my grandparents, if they come into hospital, they, they're often made to sit in drenched pads, dirty clothes, because staff simply do not have the time or capacity to check, <clears throat> to check on them. We've had a massive increase in, in patients falling over and inju injuring themselves because no one's able to attend their call bells. We have patients presenting with cardiac sounding chest pain that really should be immediately into a bed and not a monitor. And they're being weighed to make out, wait hours in un unmonitored waiting rooms because there's no safe areas to put them in. We're effectively gambling that we just hope that they're not going to be having a heart attack, but they often are. We've had uh, COVID patients uh, dying by themselves with no one sitting there to hold their hand or to be with them in their last moments because staff are just too stretched. And one of the things that rang out at the, at the last strikes for me was listening to countless stories of nurses saying they'd made promises to their patients to be with them, but they just they couldn't be there for them at their last moments. And all of this breaks our hearts as nurses because it's just fucking unacceptable. But this unacceptable situation has become the norm. We have ambulances stacked up in the ambulance bay having to wait upwards of three hours to offload overflowing waiting rooms and a constant pressure from hospital executives to keep delivering the same model of care with fewer and fewer resources. We've got countless nurses leaving the profession, some to other states where they offer better protections, and we've, seen un we've got unseen before levels of sick leave and nurses and midwives <clears throat> suffering from burnout and mental health issues. We're in the midst of a staffing crisis throughout New South Wales. Our hospital system is in crisis, our staff are broken, and our hospitals are not safe. Now, this isn't because of COVID, 
All COVID did was shine a light onto the many cracks and fault lines that already existed in our health system. A public health system that's been under attack for over 10 years by conservative governments that are attempting to sell it off to the highest bidder. A liberal government that has ignored cries from staff that are shouting that we are not safe. A liberal government that midway through the biggest crisis we've dealt with in New South Wales decides to cut the pay of nurses, midwives, paramedics. Shameful. Same Liberal government that tells us we're heroes while stabbing us in the back. So why is this all happening? Because there has been an absolute failure by these neoliberal corporate thugs disguising themselves as politicians to fund our health system. Over 10 years of cuts to our public sector and its workers. While our country is getting sicker, these jokers in Parliament are continuing to give themselves executive bonuses. But enough is enough. Enough is enough. Nurses and midwives are fed up, we've fired up and we've found our voice. We're sick of the hypocrisy. We're sick of being told we're healthcare heroes without getting a pay, with, while getting a pay cut and the government turning a blind eye to the dire situations in our hospitals. They've got no respect for nurses or midwives and therefore no respect to our public health system and those who care for it. The workers have realised that if we wait, expecting this government to give us anything, we'll be waiting a long time and we'll come back empty-handed. This Liberal Party doesn't want to fix any of this because they're the ones who have created this catastrophe. It's up to us to fight for a healthier system. The last couple of months, nurses and midwives, I'm sure you've all seen, have mobilised via their hospital branches and have voted unanimously to take to the streets in industrial action. <laughs> nurses and midwives in New South Wales are demanding a mandated nurse to patient ratio, which means that one nurse would look after no more than four patients on the wards and three patients in ED. This would instantly create safer working environments and allow for better patient care. We're also asking for a pay rise above the New South Wales 2.5% uh, cap rate. So we took to the streets in, 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 in mass on the 15th of February. There were roughly 8,000 people, maybe more, that uh, crowded in front of Parliament House, filled up Macquarie Street. And hospital branches voted around New South Wales for nurses to strike from between 4 to 24 hours. And it wasn't just in the city. We, had, we saw actions all over New South Wales, 60 nurses on the streets in, in Orange, 200 nurses and midwives out in Bega, protests in Lismore, Coffs Harbour and many more. Then on the 31st of March, we got more, more than 160 branches to vote in favour of striking for 24 hours. So this was an increase in branch activity from the first strike. This Liberal government, through its inaction and incompetency, has woken a dragon. And we will keep fighting until we have fairer conditions and we've won safer hospitals for our public. And we will do this through mobilised, organised and an angry pack of nurses and midwives. <laughs> as uh, my role as branch secretary, uh, I get out and walk around the wards and to gauge how nurses are feeling. And there's never been a time in my career 
where nurses are, are more engaged with the struggle for fairer conditions. Workers know what's right, and we're motivated to keep pushing until we win this battle. The shouts on the streets from nurse, nurse and midwives at the last rally was that we will keep coming back until we have won this. And it feels like we have the broader community support on this journey, which has been amazing. Countless nurses and midwives have spoken up to media outlets and have written to their local MPs, or have turned up at their local MPs' offices and have educated themselves about the political struggle we're facing. But there's still a lot more that needs to be done. Our last strike brought the Premier and the Health Minister into a meeting with, with the union officials and they acknowledged that they were thinking about measures to improve staffing. We do not need their thoughts. <laughs> I fucking wouldn't want to look at their thoughts. We need action. And we will not get any solid changes. Sorry, until we get any solid changes, there's no way we're taking our foot off the pedal. This neoliberal government led by Don Perrottet will not roll over easy when it comes to funding our public health system and its workers. And we need to keep building our solidarity with our comrades throughout the public sector, especially HSU and the paramedics. So instead of just having the nurses and midwives striking by themselves or HSU striking with the paramedics, we can coordinate a series of health strikes of all healthcare workers to give an amazing show of strength. And that, that's, that's how we're going to need to go forward here. But it's, look, it's been an incredible campaign to, to work on. Uh, I've never felt prouder to be a nurse. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to the next steps and uh, the next opportunity to stand with a, a sea of scrubs shouting through the walls of Parliament House. So. <laughs> That was just incredible. In this system where we have this crisis in healthcare from the pandemic, we've got a massive climate crisis, this government should be not only, not only fixing them but also talking to the university system to pump out nurses to, and pump out a whole yeah. green army to transform this system from the crisis it's currently in. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm speaking on behalf of Nick Rima who I literally got told like 10 minutes ago about it. That's what I His mum, he'd, he'd, he'd love to be here, so I just want to communicate that it's not because it's the last priority. Um, uh, so, in terms of just to, to paint a picture of what the pandemic has been like in the university system, I mean, we've been dealing with similar liberal government cuts, they, the Jobs Ready graduate pack, package that's forced you know, art students to pay as much as double for their degrees, has cut 15% of funding from the system. We've seen 8% 8, 8 uh, cut in the 2021 one budget and then, and then more cuts to come. Uh, and, and this has been combined with kind of a, uh, an ideological um, uh, attack on the public institution of the university, talking about how uh, there's a new trailblazer university package uh, which promises that... Uh, Universities should be working hand in glove with business to, prov to provide business solutions, which is just the opposite of the, the kind of thing that we, that we actually need. These cuts from above have then kind of been, ha happened at the management, at the management level. Through, we, we, we lost 10,000 jobs across the sector in 2020 and another 34,000 in universities alone in 2021 and another 6,000 in TAFE. 
through this period, uh, managements have, have across the country a half a billion dollars in profit through the crisis. This has not been a there's, a, there's been a lot of uh, rhetoric about how oh, the, the lack of international students has put us in a tough place. The reality is that management have, have cut jobs in order to save money and, and make, rep, make massive profits through the crisis. What has this meant on the ground for students through the pandemic, classes have gone to Zoom, classes have, uh, class sizes have skyrocketed, like the kind of complaints uh, and like requests for like extensions and kind of things that I got during the uh, pandemic got increasingly brutal as students from all around the world having incredibly difficult family situations and all of this with absolutely no support. My university, when I was trying to offer them support, I found out that my university had cut all counselling and psychological services for overseas students. Shame. So yeah, it's been it's been it's been a very difficult time. Actually, of those thirty four thousand jobs I talked about in twenty one uh, in twenty twenty one, majority of them were permanent jobs. So the part of this crisis has been a jacking up of casualisation, taking away people's rights to sick pay. We're in a sector where it was already seventy five percent insecure before the crisis. Universities have stopped releasing their numbers, so we don't know where it is. But it'll be bad when we do find out. So. Um, in this picture, I guess people people are increasingly increasingly overworked and and, and, and overstressed, and there's a, a deep degree of anger. I want to talk about what the union has done because uh, our story during the pandemic was that the union tried to suggest a, a, a jobs protection framework, with the suggestion being that if we agree to cut our own wages by as much as fifteen percent, uh, then management would pinky promise that they wouldn't cut jobs. This was not the, not this was. Uh, suggested it was adopted at a, at a handful of branches who found it incredibly difficult now after after making that agreement because when management turned around and said actually we will cut those jobs instead of the union saying we're going to fight we're going to win they said oh imagine how bad it would have been if we didn't take that pay cut you know we shouldn't be fighting too hard but that was only a minority of branches the majority of branches across the country defeated this framework stood up to the executive of the union and said this is not the way that we want to this is not the way that we want to go and that was a, that was a huge a huge win for us um, connected with that there's been kind of uh, a, a really impressive resurgence of casuals organizing down at melbourne university through a campaign of sit-ins and fight back uh, of casual staff who refused to say no when management said no we won't we'll only meet with your with your special representative, they brought in hundreds of casuals to come in, sit down, and refuse to leave until they got their wages back. This is in a situation of kind of enormous wage theft in the in the, in, in, in the university system, especially for casual staff with management penny pinching every single cent. Recently, we for all of our student consultation hours and discussion, and in my faculty, we used to have four hours. That was cut down to zero hours. Uh, for all of that, all of that kind of student, student consultation. So the wage theft is just enormous, and it's been a huge fight back. Impressively, casuals across the country fighting to get their wages back. Uh, and recently, we also saw a, a great fight back of the queer uh, network of the union fighting back against kind of some transphobia from the top of top of the officials and saying, "No, we refuse. We're going to be a fighting union, and we're going to fight for gender affirmation leave." And that's now a national campaign for our union. <laughs> So that set the groundwork, and now we're facing a national round of enterprise bargaining. Um, unlike the nurses, it is occasionally legal for us to strike. Every four years, it, it, it open, we have a, a, a renegotiation of our contract, which is the one time where we're allowed to legally strike. All of that time before that, those fights about wage theft, fights about uh, mass, massive um, 
I guess the massive job losses, these have all had to happen without any form of strike action. People in the room will know about the kind of fights we had. I mentioned wage theft at Sydney University where I'm based. We fought back the arts faculty cuts. We got no permanent job cuts. We saved theatre and performance studies. We saved uh, department, uh, the studies in religion, which management were trying to cut. And we also fought back um, the, the cuts to, medicine, to, to the medical faculty where they were trying to cut permanent jobs in the middle of the pandemic. But you had to do all of that with absolutely no use of strikes. And so after this kind of long struggle, we finally got our first opp opportunity to take strike action. What are we fighting for? We're fighting for, we're fighting against the kind of the attacks on workloads. We're fighting against the, um, the attempt by management to basically force academics to do teaching only positions to say that it's important that the people who are teaching at the tertiary education level have a chance to be researchers and teachers at the same time. Students should be getting the, the, the forefront of education and, and, and not just the same old recycled texts again and again. Uh, we're fighting back against casualisation. As I mentioned at, at my university, we've got 74% of people on, on insecure contracts. We're fighting for hundreds of permanent, proper academic jobs with a priority entry for casuals. We're fighting for sick pay for casuals and to increase our wages, increase our casual loading, basically to punish the university into hiring proper, permanent jobs. As I mentioned, we're fighting on a bunch of social issues. We're fighting against racism. We're trying to force our university to employ First Nations people, trying to give them cultural safety leave, trying to fight for um, a whole number of, of anti-sexist issues, for example, um, that I mentioned gender affirmation leave, pay parental leave for casuals, and equal superannuation payments for casuals to end the sexist super gap. And finally, we're fighting for a fair pay rise in a time when uh, prices are absolutely skyrocketing thanks to war in, war in Ukraine, I, to, to just try and keep up with the cost of living for, for you know, ordinary casuals who are trying to meet, meet, meet rent in a, in a city like Sydney. So that's what we want to fight for. We've been unable to strike. In order to get to the point of striking, we went through the process of a protected action ballot where we had to send a, an anonymous secret ballot to all of our members, every single uh, member, and get them to promise that they would, um, uh, to, to, to see if they would agree to every single form of strike action. Uh, we managed, uh, uh, you had to get more than 50% of people to, to reply to the ballot, and then more than 50% of those people to say yes. It's only after doing that that for a very short period of time it becomes legal for us to take strike action. We managed to get that ballot out to our almost 2,000 members with an 80% response rate and 93% of them said we want to strike for 24 hours. Then, just this week, two days ago on Thursday, we had a massive, uh, we, had, we, had, we had a union meeting of Sydney University, we had 350 people in attendance. Uh, and we had to make the, make the choice one by one of, do you want to do a 24-hour strike on May 11? Not a single hand against. Do you want to turn that into a 48-hour strike? The first time we've done that, start, start off straight off the back with 48-hour strikes, and we won that with 75% of the vote. And then we said, if management don't come back the next week, with a serious commitment on any of those things, we're going to strike again two weeks later. <laughs> so it's a very exciting time. We're about to we're about to actually have an opportunity to fight management, to have a, a picket lines, stop them, show them that it's we who run the university, not the managers who sit sit there sending us insulting and demeaning emails. Um, and, and, it, and, it, and it's us who can fight for a better future. Importantly, uh, those two of those strike dates will be immediately before the election. 
and then one of those strike days will be immediately the week after. So I think we have a huge opportunity to strike against Morrison, to join the nurses who are fighting against uh, John Perrottet and the teachers to say we're fighting against Morrison and his, his model of the universities. But also, when it comes to the election, the reality is we know we're going to have to keep the pressure up on a Labor government, if we, even if we are successful of kicking out Morrison, to actually fight for him, him to make a real commitment. So we're going to keep up the fight before and after the election, kick out ScoMo, and win a fair university. Yeah. everyone. Um, as I said, um, I'm an activist with the Teachers' Federation. I'm a delegate um, at the high school I work at, uh, as well as a council member to the Teachers' Federation Council, a solidarity member. Um, I want to briefly outline the current situation for the union movement today, um, as well as talking about the strategy going forward. Uh, so the current context, we're coming out of the lockdowns that, um, where, as Damien said, you know, there was two years of cheering on the frontline workers, saying we're all in this together, you're heroes. Uh, very quickly, reality has come back um, and suddenly it's pay cuts. Um, you know, the Federal Minister for Education was in the paper a few weeks ago saying that public school teachers are duds, that we're responsible for the terrible test results and so on. Um, <laughs> but the, the difference and the, the reality has really been um, exposed further in New South Wales by a series of public sector strikes. Um, the teachers went out for the first time in a decade at the end of last year. Uh, <laughs> we're fighting for um, a 5 to 7.5% pay rise, uh, which will break the pay cap as well as two hours extra planning time per week. Um, the nurses have been out, as we heard about, the healthcare workers covered by the HSU, um, the buses, the train drivers, um, it's happening. And it's a welcome, um, a welcome thing after a long period of inaction by many of these unions. Uh, and it's, it's in part reflective of how bad conditions have gotten. We've heard about what it's like in the hospitals. Um, it's, it's very similar in the schools. Uh, you go in there, the classes are being collapsed, um, they can't find teachers anywhere. Uh, um, and there's just this, this feeling people are constantly asking, when are we going out? When, when is the strike happening? Um, but the big uniting factor across these sectors has been wages. Uh, even before um, inflation began to climb rapidly, we were seeing wage stagnation. Uh, now the forecast is for inflation to hit 4.25% this financial year, while wages are only predicted to grow by 2.75%. Um, so a huge wage cut. Um, if you look at the graphs for corporate profits, the corporate profits continue to go upwards and that trend um, while uh, our, our wages have not gone up the same amount. Um, and it's really exciting that these strikes are happening despite the draconian laws that we have in this country, some of the worst industrial relations laws in the world. Um, so as Danny said, um, in many sectors, strike action is only, only legally allowed um, during bargaining periods every few years. Uh, you have to go through this whole process of balloting and so on. Um, and it's worth pointing out that many of these constraints were introduced by the Keating government, a Labor government in the early 1990s. Uh, in the New South Wales public sector, um, we're on the award system uh, rather than the enterprise bargaining agreements. So we don't even have this limited right to strike. Um, we're not legally allowed to take strike action. Uh, but in some ways, we do have slightly more freedom in that um, if the government wants to stop us, they have to take us to the Industrial Relations Commission. This takes time. If we then defy that, um, it then takes longer for them to get any fines on us. Um, the teachers were only fined $30,000 for the last strike. Um, and historically, uh, particularly after the Clario um, Shea strikes in 1969, often these orders have been defied um, and the fines not paid. Um, but nevertheless, the, the situation with these laws has, has stifled industrial action in this country. 
Um, we've seen a steep decline in the number of strike days since the 1970s. And I think if we are going to have any hope of winning our demands, um, the pay and the conditions, then we have to confront these anti-strike laws. There has to be um, a defiance of them, there has to be a fight against them. Um, you know, it's got to the point of ridiculousness in the Teachers' Federation. Uh, we're not openly allowed to discuss our next strike. Um, instead, there's these coded messages from above. Um, there's references to Star Wars and May the Fourth be with you and so on. Um, and, you know, if we can't openly discuss and debate when our next strike is, um, what hope do we have of building the union movement? You know, that's not democratic. It's not the way you involve people and have participation. So these bad laws need to be broken. Um, they need to be smashed. In the New South Wales public sector, we then have the additional uh, restriction of the 2.5% pay cap that our wages can't go, go above. Um, I'll also point out, though, that in Victoria, under a Labor government, that pay cap's even lower. Um, so it's going to take a huge united fight to challenge um, and break this policy, um, as Damien said, and, but not just the healthcare workers, but across the sectors <laughs> it needs to happen. Um, and as I've already mentioned, though, that, that none of this is inevitable. Um, you know, the, there is a fight back happening. Uh, the public sector unions, the NTU um, workers, um, but also there's been some huge wins in transport and warehouses. Um, an example is the country road warehouse workers, uh, where they had 12 days of strike action last year and won a 13.3% pay rise mm -hmm. over the next four years, as well as back pay to when the agreement ended. <laughs> so it shows you what, what struggle can do. Um, but at the same time, we're seeing employers go on the offensive and particularly using the, the threat of, eliminate, um, of terminating their agreements. So Qantas has used this recently where flight attendants at the end of last year voted down an agreement that was going to see cuts to their paying conditions. Um, Qantas then went to the Fair Work Commission and argued for the agreement to be terminated, um, which if it had... Um, would have been put, forced them back onto the award, which was, uh, could have seen pay cuts of up to 50% for these flight attendants. Um, so not surprisingly, the flight attendants then re-voted on that, that agreement that had been previously put to them, voted it up um, to see them, yeah, in a worse position. Um, and this has also been used by Patrick's down at the docks, and we're seeing it in other com companies. Um, so this is the context. What, what are we doing about it? What is the strategy to fight it? Um, and I think it's, we've got to say, we can't just leave it up to the union leadership. We can't think that there's this grand strategy in place um, and that everything's sorted. Um, unfortunately, the union bureaucracy plays a particular role, um, you know, as, as well-meaning as they often are. Um, they're in negotiations with the bosses constantly, feeling the pressure, you know, the bosses saying, no, you can't have that, no, you can't have that. Um, you know, while they may have been teachers and nurses at one point, uh, they're no longer in that classroom. They no longer have the five-period day at school with the kid throwing chairs that's then followed by parent-teacher interviews for three hours unpaid. Um, you know, they don't have that sense of urgency and desperation um, to, fight, to fight the situation. Uh, Marxist Cliff and Glaxon wrote of the union bureaucracy, struggle appears as a disruption of the bargaining process, a nuisance and an inconvenience, which may threaten the accumulated funds of the union. Um, the last point there, referring to the, the, uh, the fines that can, that can come from taking strike action. And this is definitely something I felt um, as a teacher. You know, at the end of last year, my school, um, you know, after being forced back into the classroom um, after the lockdown, uh, there were no HEPA air filters, there were no masks being provided, the windows haven't opened since the 1970s. Uh, we have kids, you know, 30 students in a classroom made for 24 at most. Um, and so we were like, this is, this is not 
happening. We're going to organise a walkout, and we were prepared to walk out and had set a date and time. Um, the union leadership intervened, um, said that we couldn't do that, gave us various reasons, including that we would jeopardise their wages and, um, and conditions campaign um, and that we'd end up in the Industrial Relations Commission over it. Um, so they, the union leadership often acts as a break, a break on the struggle. Um, but at the same time, they're also under pressure. They know that these teachers want to walk. They know that we can't continue like this. Um, and so, um, you know, at times, at times they are forced into taking action if they want the union to remain relevant, if they want to keep the membership. And since calling, um, when they called last year's strike, you saw the membership go up, um, people join, rejoining the union um, and so on. Um, there's the added factor that this is an election year, federal election year, um, and the strikes are a way of hearing opposition to the Liberal government. And we can't be neutral in this. Morrison has to go. He's responsible for so much um, of the terrible conditions. Um, and there is a real difference between the ALP and the Liberals. Um, the ALP have promised to clamp down on insecure work. Um, they've talked about abolishing the ABCC and ROC, which is in the construction industry, um, and preventing fair work from being able to unilaterally terminate agreements, um, as was the case with Qantas and Patrick's. Um, but at the same time, we can't have illusions in the ALP. In 2007, there was that big um, Your Rights at Work campaign, which began with industrial struggle, huge mobilisations of the union movement, um, but was essentially wound down to an electoral campaign. Uh, John Howard was voted out, um, he lost, but Labour in Power introduced Fair Work, the Fair Work Act, uh, which was just as effective as Howard's work choices intended in stopping industrial action. Um, this year, we don't even have that kind of level of campaign around the election which says a lot about Labor's small target um, campaign and also the conservatism of the union leadership. Um, but I think that we are likely to see a continuation of the strikes. Um, you know, the teachers have more planned. I'm sure the nurses do. Um, but I think it's going to be under the strict control of the union leadership and carefully planned around elections um, with the hopes of a Labor government, um, particularly with um, state elections next year. Um, what I think we need, though, is a strategy not reliant on Labor. Um, the, the pie of money under capitalism is only so big and we are seeing um, the warmongering ramping up, um, more money going to weapons and defence and labour, labour is complicit in this. Um, and as long as that's the case, you know, there's less money for schools, there's less money for the hospitals, less money for the trains and the buses. Um, so we need greater rank and file co coordination activity in each of these unions that is able to push back against this. Uh, the strikes open up a space for this. It gives people a taste of their own power. Um, it prevents, uh, presents opportunities for debates and discussion. Uh, and there's a potential for escalation to take these further. Um, so I think we need to be with the union officials in building these strikes, um, doing all we can to make the biggest turnout possible, but at the same time sowing no illusions in them. Um, we need to argue that the industrial action has to go further than confined set pieces around the elections. Um, it needs to be stepped up and continue to escalate um, until our demands are met. Um, uh, and at the same time, I just want to point out that we're in this, this great time for strike action um, where there is huge public support for workers' demands. Um, you know, everyone has seen what it's like to teach your kid at home. Everyone has seen what it's like um, for the nurses in the hospitals. Um, and at the same time, there's these huge staff shortages in many sectors, particularly for the teachers, this has been the case, um, where, you know, often your kid is not even being taught by a teacher qualified in that subject area. Perhaps they don't even have a teacher for a few hours a day at the moment. They're in the library under um, minimal supervision. Um, so I think that there will be huge um, support for our actions. 
Um, the nurses, teachers, universities, these struggles will be incredibly important for improving conditions and wages more broadly. They'll have flow-on effects, uh, but also for politics more generally. They put us in a better position to argue um, against war. They put us in a better position to argue against war uh, action on climate change and so on. Um, so we need socialists active in their unions, carrying the motions, having the arguments, um, and hopefully we can continue to build that network of activists um, through forums such as today, um, and I hope that people can bring out in the discussion uh, examples from their own workplace uh, of, of the type of struggle going on. Thank you.